Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Amy Greeson. Amy travels around the world seeking natural remedies and cures in the rainforests and the jungles and the wild places. Amy, how would you describe what you do? It's a great question, Mike. Um, you know, I, I, I think when I look at it, my entire life uh, studying pharmacy and then I guess probably the first eight to 10 years of practicing as a retail pharmacist, I was always under the impression that all the pharmaceuticals we were dispensing came from a bottle, which came from a laboratory that was synthetically created. Uh, in the 90s, in our area, uh, you guys in California were way far ahead of us, but it was around the 90s in, in our areas in, in North Carolina that people really started looking a lot more at herbal treatments, you know, uh, the St. John's wort and ginkgo uh, were just, you know, becoming common words. And, and um, we had customers that were doing a lot of the herbs and also taking a lot of prescriptions. And so I built a practice with integrative medicine so that I would make sure that uh, what they wanted to do, we were doing it safely and there were not a lot of drug interactions and, and so forth. But during that process of really starting to learn about plant medicine, I began to understand how many of our pharmaceuticals actually came from nature. And, you know, roughly 55% of the prescriptions that we were dispensing every single day had their origins in nature. But we never were taught that or we you don't see the commercials where they start telling you about the newest, greatest uh, pharmaceutical and then said, oh, you know, by the way, uh, you know, this came from uh, the di digitalis leaf or, or, or so forth. And so I think uh, for me, uh, there was a twofold process. I became more aware of how vital plant medicine is how important nature is, how critical our indigenous cultures are, uh, because they are really the keepers of this great wisdom. Uh, but also, you know, there's significance in mainstream pharmacy. At the same time, I guess, I also saw that we were no longer really exploring nature like we used to in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as far as their relevance to pharmaceuticals. And, uh, and so I wanted to go out and find these treatments, and, and find is not the right word, um, maybe become aware of these treatments and work with Indigenous people to perhaps bring those on a greater scale so that the rest of the world could benefit by, by these, um, uh, these, these beautiful treatments. And so that was a, a long roundabout uh, answer to your question, but thank you for asking that. 
Oh, it's it's quite impressive work. And we're going to get into, I believe, your first forays into the, the tropical areas, the Amazon, the Andes. But before we let you go there, you got a good drinking story for us. <laughs> I do. I actually have a couple. One, uh, and I think the, the, the first one that comes to mind, which is a very happy one, was when I was admitted into the Explorers Club. And uh, my friends, Michelle Westmoreland and Dave Dolan and, and several others said, oh, you know, you've got to have a, a, a little Shackleton. And so uh, I bought uh, a bottle of Shackleton. And with my dearest friends, we all toasted to that. And that will always be one of my favorite memories uh, because the Explorers Club was actually one of the highlights of my life. Uh, and then the other is more of a... Um, a difficult memory, but when we were in the Congo, we were in an area that was uh, listed as undocumented. And during the process of, of being in, in this first foray into this area, we ran out of water and we had these satellite images and it, it, it showed um, creeks, rivers um, running through. And we anticipated restocking our water every so often when we got to these points, but it was the dry season. And Mike, it's like every time we got to this area, it was nothing but like a dried creek bed. And um, uh, so it was one of the most difficult things because everyone was severely dehydrated and you're still carrying, we were, uh, I think my I was probably at a 45 pound pack, but our guides and, and uh, translators and, and trackers were all carrying, you know, they were much stronger. So 55, 60 pound packs and carrying those things when you're dehydrated. And so when we finally came out, we're walking along this dirt logging road and we come across this small Creek and the tendency was just to sort of face plant yourself into this, this creek and just, you know, drink it all up. But uh, at that point, we had SteriPens, and so we treated the water. And uh, although it was brown, and of course, you know what it's like, particles in the water, it didn't matter. But that was one of the most enjoyable drinks I've ever had in my life. You mentioned that many of our pharmaceuticals that we enjoy that we benefit from originated from natural sources in tropical rainforests and jungles. Can you give us some examples so that we can have a feel for what you're out there looking for? Absolutely. Um, some of my favorite examples are actually more animals, even though we focus on uh, the, the plants and such, but there's a fine line between killing and healing, if you will. So for example, uh, there's a uh, venomous uh, pit viper down in South America called Bothrops terrarica. Researchers, when they were studying the snake, they noticed that when it struck its prey, it caused a life-threatening plunge in blood pressure. So they isolated a compound out of this venom and it became a drug called captopril. And captopril is in a class of drugs that we call ACE inhibitors. And this is used for people uh, primarily with high blood pressure. And so now there's a whole, you can go to any pharmacy anywhere in the United States. They, you will see large bottles of 
drugs like captopril, enalapril, uh, lisinopril, and, and so forth. And that all came from that venomous uh, pit viper. And then, you know, a huge amount of our antibiotics from penicillin, cephalosporin, uh, the AIDS drug, AZT, our number one blood thinner, uh, which most people know by the name of Coumadin or Warfarin. Uh, the story with that was back in the 1920s, there were farmers in Wisconsin and some of their cattle were bleeding. They were hemorrhaging to death. And they finally found the source of this to a particular batch of sweet clover. Uh, this particular batch had been stored in overly dry conditions, and those conditions had facilitated the development of a mold. And that mold was preventing the blood from clotting. So scientists and researchers looked at this and they looked at this and they studied it. They created, uh, I can't remember when, like in the 40s, I guess, brought a product to market and they used it for rat poisoning. Well, they always thought it was unsafe for human consumption when like uh, several years later, I think it was an army inductee attempted suicide by taking it and he lived. So then they created the pharmaceutical, which became Coumadin and later Warfarin. And to my knowledge, I believe it's still the world's most prescribed uh, anticoagulant blood thinner, uh, so forth. Um, so, you know, there's just uh, huge amounts of stories with things that, you know, I look at when I was a pharmacist and dispensing these meds and, I'll tell you, Mike, I, I was dispensing the captopril, the one that came from the venomous pit viper. And I was telling one of our, our, our patients one day, I said, oh, you're never going to believe where this pharmaceutical came from. And I told her, and I'll be dadgum if she didn't call her doctor and said, I am not taking a prescription that came from a snake. I sort of stopped telling people where their drugs came from after that. It's amazing, though. Coumadin from a fungus that's that's growing on a clover that's growing somewhere out in the wild places that was, you know, how they found it and how they were able to develop it is amazing. It is. And and so often when we've been on these treks, I will ask the elders, now how do you know this medicine? Because you know, you know how it is, Mike. You're in a jungle and there's millions of species. So how do you know that this one particular plant is good medicine? It won't kill you. So many times the answer was my father taught me and his father and his father and his father. And there's no real answer as to that initial source. So I think a lot of times they were um, dreams uh, spirit led, uh, is what I've been told as well, or they have watched an animal, uh, like the puma eating, you know, bark or something that made himself feel better. I think that that was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was an anti-malarial drug that, that, that came out of that story. But I think that there is a huge spiritual connection that our Western medicine hasn't quite acknowledged as much as the other cultures in the world. And it's significant when it comes to healing. And I understand you had an extraordinary experience in Madagascar. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes. And do you know what story? Do you know that that was the exact story that came to mind when you when you mentioned that question? So we were in Madagascar and um, uh, they have very important spiritual ceremonies, if you will, uh, from uh, Trumbas and and MBSs. And so we traveled all day to an area, spent the night, and then basically traveled all day by boat along the coast of Madagascar to get to this particular area that a friend of our guides had heard about, but no one had actually been there. And so we arrived to this village unannounced. Thankfully, they allow us to, to come on shore. We asked permission of the elders to speak with their healer. So they granted us this permission, and uh, we are walking through this village on the outskirts of this village and are being led to this healer's home. And when we arrive, the healer's not there. He is out tending his um, rice field. And so we wait and we wait. And the reason I'm saying that or or, or, um, starting with that part is because when the healer arrived, he had no forewarning that we were there. So when he came, he immediately took us into his healing hut, if you will. And uh, we went into ceremony after we spent about an hour talking to him. With this ceremony, you, with all sacred ceremonies, you're never really allowed to film or audio. It is so sacred that, um, that that is just something that you just cannot do. And so for this, the building was so small that only two of us could stay with our translator and the healer. And we sat across the room, the width of this hut, crossing our legs and sitting, our legs overlapped, our knees overlapped. And that's how small this building was. But the healer started um, the ceremony. I will tell you, so he closed the door. It's completely dark. It's a wooden shed that is raised about a foot off the ground in the middle of nowhere. There's no other buildings around. About 20 feet beyond it is uh, where the forest basically begins. But it's just cleared all around this one little hut. We all have to be blindfolded. So we're blindfolded. The door is shut. The rest of our team is outside this hut. And we are sitting there and the healer begins to summon the spirits. He's calling in the spirits. And we sit there. Nothing happens. A few minutes later, says the same thing. Our translator, who's sitting to the right of me, says he's calling in the spirits. So he calls them in. A few seconds later, the entire hut shook. A voice came back behind myself and my dear friend, Josh, who was with us in in, in the hut. It was one of those sounds, Mike, to this day, I cannot describe what this sound is like other than these movies that are like horror flicks that have these uh, demonic sounds. It was um, eerie. It was dark. And I could not fathom the entity that this voice was behind. And so I'm sitting there 
I'm literally praying, please protect us because I have no idea what I've gotten us into. I don't know what's going to happen. Josh uh, later on told me he was doing this exact same thing. So, but this healer begins to have this conversation with this spirit entity. They go through this whole process of helping our translator who has an issue of uh, someone has been selling his, uh, stealing his rice. At this time, you know, food is very scarce. So somebody stealing your rice supply threatens, you know, the, the food for your entire family. So it was a huge ordeal, but they had this conversation back and forth. And every time the translator says something to the healer, and then he tells us what he's saying, then the entity behind us responds in this language. This goes on for like 20, 30 minutes. And then we end the ceremony. When we walk out, my whole insides are quivering. You know, the team said both of our, our faces were just like absolutely white. But it took hours uh, to calm down. And it wasn't so much... It was scary, and it was scary because I'd never had an experience with that before. It wasn't scary to anyone in that culture because this is just the norm of what they experience. And so it it opened my heart and my mind to understanding the connections that other people have in the world. I, I began to understand that there was just so much that I don't know. Uh, that I don't understand. And so that um, will always be one of those experiences in life that always make me think twice before I have a judgment on what anybody else uh, practices. You'll have to be scratching your head as to what, what is, what was it? I know. Do you know? So afterwards, and, and so, oh, and then when the ceremony ended, the hut, hut shock shook again. On the outside, our team is seeing the hut shake. They have no idea what we're doing in there. They just assume we were dancing or doing something like that. But the most amazing thing is, is they heard us. They heard not us. They heard the translator and they, they heard the healer, but they never heard the louder, more boisterous voice of that spirit, even though, you know, it was just wood with, I mean, wind could come through, the light could come through that hut. And you would think that any kind of audio sound would have penetrated out, but they never heard the voice of that, even though that was so much louder than the translator and the healer. And that at that point was just like, you know, all of a sudden your stomach just like tightens and it's like, there's no way you did not hear that. There's just no way. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was something that, that, that took Josh and myself quite a while to get over. Is it Jahiri? Yes. Jahiri, I think you were asking about the spirits and how he knew how to treat people. Did he say that he received information from these spirits on, on how to treat them? Yes. Yes. And sometimes it was more of um, a, a spiritual 
mental psychological treatment, and sometimes it was through plants. But he also had uh, in his hut, he had an area that was like an altar area. So, you know, rocks and other sacred objects. But there were also like knives, like Bowie knives. And I had never seen sacred objects like that. And so even when we inquired, you know, what are the knives for? He didn't really elaborate other than to say when people had problems, sometimes they would use that and it would take care of the problem. I think uh, if I remember in your book, he described, I think it was a possession and that a spirit used the knives. And when you start asking, well, how does spirit use the knives? He, uh, he deferred. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to sort of back up a few feet or something. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Those are probably such secrets uh, that are not shared a lot with the outside world. Yeah, there's that that trust and whether or not they'll share it with you. Let me switch gears on you. Your first forays into tropical rainforests and jungles. That, I believe, occurred in the Amazon Basin in the Andes? Yes. yes. And what led you there? I had uh, a friend who was spearheading the movement with natural medicine for pharmacists. She had been studying with uh, a shaman uh, in Peru. I think it was Peru for many, many years. And he finally allowed her to bring a few of her friends. Spent time with him. Uh, he was just an amazing teacher. And um, being in that jungle was this feeling, and it's still like that, that it's a piece that my soul connected on so many levels when it was time to leave and we are, you know, boating out of this area, which we're in dugout canoes. And then we, there was a, and I don't want to say it was depression. It was the sadness for leaving that because I felt like I was leaving a part of myself behind. I think what it is, is just that part of our, our human soul that connects to nature. And as a pharmacist, I spend 40, 50, 60 hours of my life every week inside of four walls and had not been reconnecting to nature. And so I think that I just fell in love with nature. And the more I fell in love, the more I learned. And the more I learned, the deeper I fell. And until it was just a part of who I became. I want to go into a little bit more detail. The healer's name was Miguel? Yes. Miguel, how would you describe him? Wow. He incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, just wise, knowledgeable, patient. And you just immediately, there was a, a, an honor and a respect just for being in his presence, even though he didn't speak your language. You didn't speak his, uh, the translators, but it was, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years of knowledge and wisdom. I realized that 
I was in the presence of someone that I couldn't even grasp the significance of who he was. But of course, you would never know that because he was so humble. Can you give us an idea of that depth of knowledge that he had? And and did he take you through the rainforest there and and show you the various uh, plants and animals? Yes. We would be walking in, in areas where he would have a machete and just slicing through. We'd come to a plant and stop and say, we use this for this, and this is what we do, or the bark of this tree. His knowledge... Yeah, it was just amazing. And there were times that he would say, this is a a good plant, but this one's not not ready yet. Or this tree, this is the same as this tree, but this is the one we take the medicine from. Visually, there's no difference. They look exactly the same, but he could tell the difference. And I don't know if there was um, a um, physical signs to that, or if it was more of a spiritual epiphany, or I I don't know, but to me, they looked the same. So it was fascinating. And I will tell you that there was a a healer and and he was in Papua New Guinea. And I never will forget, we were talking to him and and, uh, memory serves me right, we had double translations because of his dialect. And so it took time for the translation to come through, but he was describing a plant that they used. The translation was saying it was thinning the blood. And I'm I'm like, what do you mean thinning the blood? He got up and he started, he dropped his right arm and made his face sort of, you know, lower And he was, it was like charades of a stroke. He was, you know, absolutely with charades going through the classic symptoms of a stroke. He was saying that the blood clots, it stops, and that this plant will get the blood to flow again. You know, I'm just mesmerized because when I'm in pharmacy school, you know, we we learned all about this and blood and fat, clotting factors. And uh, and I'm thinking this gentleman has no education. He's nowhere near a university. There are other people do not come here. How does he know that? And the best that our translator could get was um, visions. He could see in the body that uh, and you will see that, that that healers will sometimes say that they're worms and, and or that they're um, insects. If you think about it under a microscope, right, when you look at organisms and stuff, they do look like worms and spiders and things like that. And uh, but this is all through some kind of visions that they are so in tuned. Anyway, it just, it blew me away. I was just like absolutely blown away with that one. Now, just to make sure that people aren't uh, under the wrong impression that these areas are are comfortable to be in. <laughs> I mean, these are, these are jungles with humidity approaching 90%, uh, yeah. high temperatures, all kinds of crawlies around. Yeah, not 
There was one in particular in the Amazon. Tell us about the caterpillar. Oh, you would bring that one up. My mother and father make me tell this story all the time, and it's so embarrassing, but I'm going to tell it for you. So we are in in the jungle. We had um, been out the whole day and came back to our base camp, if you will. There's constantly insects flying around you all the time, and you, know, you, you just, it's just a, a normal reaction. You're, you're constantly swatting, not only to keep from getting bitten or stung, but you don't know what those bites and stings will produce. And so that's the scarier part of it is you don't want to get there and all of a sudden have some kind of health crisis because of that. And so anyway, we were standing around talking and uh, it was an insect on the back of my leg that just kept bothering me. And I kept swatting without looking at it because we're all engaged in a conversation. And I finally just got so irritated that I, I hauled off and I just knocked the crap out of the back of my leg thinking, you know, I'm going to get rid of this little fly for the last time. And when I did, all of a sudden it felt hornet stings in between, you know, the folds of, of, of your fingers, which is such delicate skin in there. I mean, I'm doing everything to keep a little tear from dropping out of my eye because it's quite painful. And I look back and there is a spiny caterpillar on the back of my leg. Well, the healer uh, walks away or our guide does, Miguel does, walks away and comes back, pries this thing off of my leg. But it, it started to affect me psychologically because I kept thinking, how did this thing get on my leg? And I wasn't even aware of it. And it wasn't a tiny little thing. I'm thinking, God, what, what else is on my body that I'm not aware of? It's just not a caterpillar. You eventually found out more about it. <gasps> Yeah, thank you. So, yes, I'm back home and fast forward four or five months later, I guess, I am at the bookstore and I see a new book that has just come out. And I buy this because it's on insects and nature and such. And I go home and I'm just absolutely fascinated. And I'm going through and there's a picture of the spiny caterpillar. And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, the book is a book about the most venomous and, and poisonous creatures. And what intrigued me to buy this book is because so many of those are the um, beginnings to a lot of the compounds that have become our chemo drugs, our, 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 uh, you know, our pain meds, things like that. So I'm always intrigued with these very venomous poisonous um, entities on, on earth. And so anyway, yeah, I start freaking out because I'm reading about it and it says it can cause uh, delayed hemorrhaging, like in the brain. And, you know, so all this stuff starts going through your mind and I'm like, oh, I have been forgetful lately. And yeah, am, am I bleeding out the brain and in my abdomen and all this stuff? And so I, I sent a note to the doctor and I'm like, oh, I got a little stung by this about seven or eight times several months ago. And they call and send me to the hospital. So I undergo all these tests and and uh, and everything is fine. But uh, it, it does make you realize uh, that even anything as small as a tiny little caterpillar 
can have detrimental effects. I an experience. You know, to better understand what you're looking for and what is out there, there's two concepts if you could describe for us. The first is, what is the law of signatures? The law of signatures is basically that in nature, that the great spirit, that God, whatever name you'd like to, to use, has placed in nature sort of um, signs that will tell you what it's good for. So, for example, if you see a fruit that looks almost like the brain, you would definitely want to study and make sure that you, you test that for Alzheimer's or dementias or you know, cognitive issues. A tree, for example, that you cut into it and it has red bark you might want to think circulation, blood flow, things like that. Leaf or a flower that might look, or a, 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 a pod that might look like a kidney, you will want to test that for any kind of kidney function, diuretics, anything along that line. And what's amazing is how often I've seen that that's so true. So like in the Congo, we get to this area Huge tree, uh, 18 feet wide and in, in, in diameter, maybe 25 feet in diameter. Uh, they take the machete, cut into it, and it's a, a yellow, a yellow inside. When I asked what did they use that for, it was urinary tract. So, you know, the yellow, the urine. I just saw that time and time and time again. And then there are uh, things that... Uh, for example, if you were in the jungle and you see something bright red, most of the time they're going to say, don't touch that. Very poisonous because here you are in a, a sea of green and all of a sudden this bright red plant and it's not eaten and it's not gone and it's standing out. And so, of course, those would be the things that we would collect because, again, you think chemo drugs or cancer or something like that. So, yes, that's the law of signatures in a, a nutshell. And along with that, you describe the, the rainforests and the jungles as all these plants are engaged in chemical warfare. What does that mean? It is. It is. So if you take a half an acre of land in Central North America and you counted the number of woody plants, you know, those plants are just you would consider woody plants. You might have 20 to 30 different species of different types of woody plants. But if you take that same half acre of land in Western Amazonia, you're going to find over 300 different species. So if you think about, you know, this half acre of land, all these species, well, that's just the wood. You know, think about the insects, the animals, the trees, uh, the bushes, the flowers, uh, everything, every kind of life form you can imagine, the soul, the microbes, all of that that's trying to survive on a half an acre of land, there's one thing you can absolutely bet on, and that's going to be competition. They're constantly fighting for water, for sunlight, for space, uh, protection from the predators and so forth. And so a plant that is threatened uh, you know, can't get up and just run away. So it has developed, in many instances, uh, these chemicals that, when threatened, they will release these. 
and it basically protects them. And a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll kill them. And so my favorite example has always been the rosy periwinkle. And the rosy periwinkle in its natural state is from Madagascar. Now, the rosy periwinkle is one of these plants. If it's threatened, uh, it will release these, these compounds. Well, the great thing is researchers looked at that. And what they found was that, uh, that it also inhibited certain forms of cancer. And so from the rosy periwinkle, we created the drugs vincristine and vinblastine. They're still used today. Uh, and one of them was instrumental in helping um, defeat or treat childhood leukemia. And so, you know, you, you, you have these jungles and, and people often say, well, you know, why, why do you go back to a same area twice? Why not go to a new area and, and develop? And it's because, you know, competition is, is nonstop. And the way a species survives is, is Darwin's uh, survival of the fittest all over. They're going to mutate. They're going to change. Whatever makes them stronger. And so they're constantly getting stronger. And this is why you know, we haven't really been able to find, we haven't been able to find a cure for the common cold. And, uh, and so anyway, but these, these areas, uh, this is why we have a huge amount of our antibiotics, things like that, that come from these areas because these compounds are so great at fighting bacteria and fungi and viruses. And I've often said, you know, you know, I think it's wonderful what we're doing in a laboratory, but dadgummit, you know, go back to nature, go in these areas and just start testing some of these plants uh, for their effectiveness against the bacteria and the viruses. Expedition Congo, arguably, I think probably the most audacious and most dangerous expedition that you've gone on. Yes. Why the Congo? Do you know, it's the second largest uh, rainforest in the world. It has always been a dream of mine. It's so uh, little explored in many areas. And so it was just this um, thought of going into undocumented area to see you know, the, the, the virgin forest. And I remember we were three or four days in to the Congo and one of the guides stopped and through the translator, he said, breathe, just breathe because you're now breathing air that no one has ever breathed before. And it was just um, that rawness of uh, really you know, being the first into an area to see that. And we wanted to be able to capture that and share that with students. And yeah, I think it was just the whole idea of the pristine nature of, of that sacred place on earth. Who went with you? We had a team of 14. Uh, so my dear friend, Tibby uh, Esteban Barrera, who was from Ecuador, was our wilderness survival uh, expert and videographer, uh, Will Weldon, who lives in Durham, 
was our sound guy, uh, second videographer. And, and then we hired a logistics team that met us there in the Congo. And then we hired local trackers, porters, guides for the rest of our team. So uh, a pretty strong, strong team. Amy, what was the plan, the objective for this expedition? The plan, honestly, we thought we're going to go into this area. Uh, A huge part of this was all about the educational materials. We wanted to immerse students in uh, things and areas where most likely none of them would experience in their lifetime and uh, to, to be able to take this journey with us and instill ideally more explorers, more uh, science, uh, biology, uh, geology kind of um, uh, drives in their lives. And so that was a huge part of doing that. And you know, we thought we're going to go in, uh, we're going to see hopefully new species of life that maybe as we get back and biologists and our other collaborators will be able to look at and say, wait a minute, you know, that's something new. I've never seen that before. A lot of this and then be able to get back and and, and see really what other people who are a lot more knowledgeable and experienced than we are uh, could see in other areas. But it, it basically what happened was nothing further from that, that, yeah, it was just the trip from hell. Yeah. So let's talk about that endeavor. You make it up to the town that you're is the jumping off point. Yeah. You're having to wait around a few days. And then you had a little encounter with the law, did you not? We did. Uh, what happened? That was, uh, oh, we were flying the drones, which we had permission, permits, everything to do. But it was in this area, they thought it was espionage. And uh, and so we're flying these drones and all of a sudden armed military guys come up and basically direct us to the back of a flatbed truck where an armed guy stands guard and we are taken off uh, to this building that uh, apparently, well, was their jail for hours. Uh, they scream and yell at us and with very limited translation. And we are, of course, terrified because, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere and this is going on and you can't talk. Uh, you can't understand what's going on. Uh, and then they ask for our passports, which as you know, is about the worst thing that can possibly happen because without a passport, you can't even cross into the next region, much less get back to the U.S. embassy or anywhere else to get out of the country. And so this went on for hours, uh, the yelling and the screaming. And finally, our logistics guides offered a bribe. Bribes are illegal. Uh, in the country, but the bribe was accepted and we were released and uh, it escalated further. 
because the bribe became an issue. And uh, so it just so happened one of the people that we had met while we were waiting around those few days was a lady who spoke English and she sort of became Tibby and Will and my, almost like a, another, a mother to us. And she took care of us and made sure we were eating and prepared food for us and so forth. And when she heard of our arrest, she made a call to her brother who happened to be the ambassador to Russia and Ukraine. And he called the president of the country and the president of the country came to our aid and immediately uh, was supportive of what we were doing, uh, was very apologetic for the way that we had been treated and uh, forced the return of any of the money. Uh, of course, we were like, please keep the money for the village, uh, use it for them. But the president's mandate was that it be returned. Uh, the interesting thing was that the very next day, two black helicopters landed in this village and the villagers had never seen helicopters before. The men got out of these helicopters and they remained in the village. They didn't talk to anyone. We never spoke to them. But what we were told was several days later, when we left to go into the jungle, the day that our SUVs loaded up and headed out, the helicopters headed out as well. And so it was a beautiful situation in a lot of ways, and uh, but also very understandable why they might have thought that it was espionage. Uh, so anyway, that was, um, that was the first of five arrests that we had, and two of them, we were taken to jail. So that was the first one. Uh, sort of makes you a little skittish to breathe uh, when you're around anything like that. That far from home. Yes, yes. You're finally ready. Tell us about going into that infamous jungle. What did you experience? It was, it was tough. Uh, we all were hacking with machetes, a lot of thorns, a lot of briars, so, you know, constantly just ripping through your clothing and your flesh and taking time. You, know, you, you, you think you're going to cover a, a certain amount of ground each day. And within an hour, that just, that just stopped because it took you know, 10 times the amount of time to go 20 yards because you're hacking through all of this until you finally get to an area uh, and it's almost like um, old forest, you know, gorgeous old trees. The canopy is absolutely spectacular and inhibited us the most was from the very beginning when we would stop for a break and, you know, 15, 20 minute break just to sit or stand and drink water um, all of a sudden a few bees would come. First, the butterflies. Butterflies were amazing because all of a sudden you'd look down and you'd have five on your shirt. And it was just like you felt like you were in, in, in paradise. You know, it was like a little piece of heaven. But then a few minutes later, bees would start to come. If you stayed there too long, uh, 
before you knew it, bees were all over you. The most difficult time was in the middle of the day around what I would guess probably was around one or two o'clock in the, in the afternoon, our indigenous friends would want to stop, make a fire and cook food. Whereas we were like, you know, we plenty of, of uh, power bars and things like that. And like, here, you can have our food or, but they didn't want that. So respectfully every day we waited for that. And at that point you're sitting there for about an hour and uh, you know, as God is my witness, you would look down and there would be no less than a hundred bees on one leg. And, and you're standing there and it, and, and you have two choices. One, you can stand there and allow these bees to keep accumulating and they're flying underneath your glasses and in your ears and all over your face. And it's a psychological, you know, uh, battle that you're, you're, you're battling within yourself, you know, just be still. They're not stinging you, but these things are crawling all over your body or you can walk. And if you walk a little bit, you still have the bees around you, but they're not, I guess, uh, as intense. But the thing is, if you're walking around, you're walking around a jungle without indigenous eyes. And I don't have those eyes. So, you know, and, and, and your, your tracker, your guide can see that, you know, there's a, a pit viper on a limb. But to me, I may miss it and it just looks like a limb or it looks like a leaf. And it's, it's really, you know, again, a pit viper or something. And so there would be a point where I would just say, you know, crap, I'm going to walk. You know, I, 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 I'd rather take my chances. Uh, and then you get out there and then I think this is stupid. I'm going to die. Bees just crawl all over me. Uh, but that became a huge ordeal with all of us that even packing up camp or setting up camp, you know, you're having to take machetes and cut the trees to be able to set up a tent on some uneven ground. And you're bending over and you're using your machete or you're setting up your tent. Well, inevitably the bees are, you know, getting caught in the crevice of your arm or in your back or in your knees. And so you're constantly getting stung. And so, and then there were the ants. Ants were horrific, more so in the Congo than I've ever seen in any jungle or section of jungle in my entire life. And this one time we had made camp, we were exhausted. Uh, and, and, you know, really, you just want to dive into your tent to have a reprieve from the bees and the insects. And I have to go pee. I mean, my bladder is about as full as it can be. And being the only female, uh, you know, the men have got it so lucky. They take five steps and just turn their back and it's no big deal. But I walk, uh, you know, a good 20 yards away from, you know, this area where we're setting up the tents. And Mike, I squat and I pee as fast as I possibly can. And I'm walking back. And all of a sudden, I feel these bites all over the back of my my back, they're on my torso, they're on my arms. And I just start slapping my body and I call over to Will. I'm like, Will, come here quick. And he runs over and he's just pounding the back of my back. We find out there are these rather large 
ants that have mandibles. And they, in that short period of time, I was stupid. I had untucked my shirt when I got to camp because it was hot and I just wanted to have some ventilation. When I had, I guess, squatted down, the ants came up my leg and then crawled up underneath my shirt. And uh, just in that time period, just all of a sudden, they're just welts all over. But you know, other than the initial discomfort, it was it was no big deal. It wasn't like it made you sick or anything, but it became a psychological game of, oh my God, if it's not the bees, it's the ants. If it's not the ants. And then we ran, we kept getting lost because, you know, there, there's, you, you can't get uh, your, your GPS doesn't work. Your satellite phone doesn't work. There's, there's no way to get through the canopy to get the signals. And our guides and our trackers were known to be some of the best in the area. But when there's no indication of where the sun is, you don't know if it's in front of you or behind you. Or if, so we kept getting lost. And in the process, uh, we ran out of water. And it was a, um, a time where you really start to uh, confront death. And every single one of us thought, we're not getting out of here. We could not find our way out of there. Even the trackers who had, you know, you, you bend the branches to create a trail. When they lost that trail, the jungle so thick, they could not find the trail for us to get back out of. And so finally, we're in the middle of the night, and uh, one of the guides finally finds one of the branches and are able to, to find the trail back out. And so, um, but it makes you grateful for um, GPS in your car these days. <laughs> yeah, it was a near thing. You, uh, you were days out there with just very little water. Yeah, it hot and humid. But amazingly, you sort of get used to it. And it's it's not like a lot of our friends who are mountain climbers who are in the snow. I mean, I can't imagine anything more miserable than being cold and wet with in an environment where you're stuck. Uh, and, 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 and at least in the jungle, you, know, you can pretty much adapt to the humidity and the heat. Uh, yeah. As long as you have water. Yes. Yes. As long as you have water. And that's something too, you know, when you become dehydrated, you don't want to eat. Uh, you, 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 you don't want to eat anything because then you feel like you need water. And I know on the last day and a half before we were able to come out, the guides had found uh, and, and I apologize, I should know the name of this vine, but I, I, I can't recall. And they turned it up and we had uh, a limited amount of, of fresh water. So everybody sort of had a few sips of that. Uh, there was a point where we were, we decided to get on a trail, uh, which was made by forest elephants, uh, just to get a break and having to hash through the jungle there was one little section where there was a tiny bit of water pooled in the footprints of these elephants. And we all took turns taking a sip of that dirty water. And it was like, okay, I don't really give a crap if I get Giardia or whatever. It just was 
that, you know, human nature that, okay, there's water, I'm going to drink it no matter what. So it was, it was a, an experience of uh, questioning, you know, priorities and teamwork and determination. Yeah. But something I don't, I pray that I don't have an experience like that ever again in my life. You were leading the expedition. How did you keep everybody together? Well, I, I think one of the biggest things that I learned early on, and uh, a dear friend of mine that I need to connect you with, Celine Cousteau, we used to talk a lot in the early days about things. And um, But one of the things is you, you never let any of the guides and porters and trackers see you panic. Now, Tibby and, and Will, the three of us, we would get together and there were points when all three of us at different times broke down and cried. It was just the breaking point. I can't handle this anymore. We're going to die, blah, blah, blah. But we did that at a place where nobody else could see. And uh, I think that there were moments uh, that I was terrified that our trackers and our guides would say, you know, the heck with this. We're not going to die. We're leaving and take all of our stuff and leave us stranded out there. I think the thing is you, you have a mutual respect. You work together as a team. You honor every member of that team. So when one of their guides had a bee sting on his hand and his hand was swollen five times, you know, the whole focus of the whole team is on that guy, period. I think that uh, you instill a level of loyalty, if you will, for all team members at that point. And luckily, we didn't get a point that there were people who left uh, for fear of their, you know, getting back to their own families and stuff. Uh, but it's not always easy. And I think um, just this point of working with the expectations of us and our culture working with what is norm in another culture. And it's not our way of life that they need to succumb to. We need to work with them. But at the same time, we've got to have understandings of how things happen. And there have been so many times that those understandings have been near to impossible enough to compromise the whole expedition. There was one particular. Uh fellow that would intrigue me on the Congo expedition, the blind healer. Mm. Tell us about him. Wasn't he beautiful? Oh my gosh. I had been around a lot of healers and elders that had some difficulty seeing because of what we would probably label cataracts or macular degeneration, something that happens in age. But this particular healer, uh, he was uh, of the Baca tribe. So most people know that better as pygmies, uh, but they prefer being known as the Baca tribe. Dominique was blind since birth. We met him, spent several hours with him, had plans to go in the dugout upstream, uh, upriver, 
up towards the Central African Republic at this point. And so we made an arrangement to come back and spend more time with him when we got back. And when we did, he had um, gone out into the jungle. What he did was he would go out with an assistant. He would know the plants that he needed. Uh, He would use his other senses. So the sense of smell, taste, uh, touch. It was amazing because he would be able to, like what I referred to earlier, the two trees, and to me, might they look the same? But he would say, take from this one, but don't take from this one. Uh, and, 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 and use this plant, but don't use that plant. And he had, again, was born blind. His father was a great healer. His father's father, his father's father's father, and so forth. And it was his birthright to become the healer. And so his father took all this time and led him by the hand into the forest and taught him how to find the medicines and to treat his village. It was by far one of the most beautiful experiences in my life. The beauty that he had when he talked about it, the knowledge that he had, it was just, it was it was, it was just beautiful. Final thoughts. I mean, you've been through a lot. We've kind of just touched on it. And I hope everyone gets a sense of understanding the harsh environments that you've been in in order to seek out this information and, and these healers. What have these expeditions taught you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that, oh, who, who was it that was it Mark Twain that said, what you think you know that just ain't so? The more you learn, the more you realize the things you don't know. And, you know, a, a prime example was just comes to mind was the, the drug Taxol that we dispensed a long time in the pharmacy, uh, used for breast cancer and ovarian and, and other things. Well, you know, the story goes back that in, in the Pacific Northwest, these loggers would go through and they would get to a patch of, of woods and they would cut down all of these trees, uh, except when they got to the Pacific U tree. And, you know, it had no commercial value. And so what they would do was they would either cut it down and toss it to the side or, or just absolutely neglect the whole thing. Well, lo and behold, years later, researchers came through and they noticed that it was the bark of this tree killed cancer cells unlike anything that they'd ever seen. And so they went through, they isolated this compound and actually here at Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, and they created this drug Taxol, which did wonders for breast cancer survivorship all over the world. Well, we dispensed this drug forever. And then... They found out it wasn't really the bark of the tree where the compound was coming from. There was a a, a microbe, like a a, a tiny little organism that was on this bark. And together with the bark, they created this compound. And I think that that's the way our world is. I think that we've made some amazing strides but I think that we are missing a huge part of what life 
really is all about and the solutions to a lot of these problems uh, that, that reside in nature in ways also that, that we're not looking at right now. I don't know what the answer is. You know, I just want you know, the world to sort of wake up and say, oh, my God. And let's start talking to these cultures and let's take these treatments and let's use them exactly the way that they use them and see, okay, if those are the benefits that we need and those are the results we need to to take that on a broader scale. Uh, But it involves the teamwork and, you know, also honoring again and respecting a group of people that don't have the doctorates or the research or the degrees, even like myself, uh, that are coming in from a completely different standpoint. And I think that when we can bridge these two worlds and we can utilize the strengths of every member of the team, I think that is the only time that we're going to have optimal health care and healing in our world. When you say recognize these indigenous healers, well, I think we have to recognize that they may not have the four, six, eight, ten years of university training, but they stand on the shoulders of generation after generation after generation of keen observers and, in their own way, scientists and medical professionals. I think if we understand that hundreds of years went into their knowledge, maybe we'll respect them a bit more. I I agree. And and I think about, you know, the example I used with the healer that was, you know, showing me every sign of a stroke. You know, Mike, he not only knew what I did on, 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 on we knew it on, on different names and compounds or whatever, different ways of looking at it, but he was even more brilliant because he had the cure. You know, I understood what a stroke was. And I knew that we had pharmaceuticals for that, but it's like, oh, here it is. This is what's going on. And, and by the way, this is what we use to treat it. And it makes it all better again. And I, I thought, oh my God, but you're, you're, you're right on. Uh, and, and intelligence takes many forms from book to uh, intuitiveness and many different realms. Amy, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to highly recommend your book. It's entitled And the, the Silent Spoke. Excellent work. Really enjoy reading it. Thank you. In, in addition to getting your book, how else can people follow your work? It really, uh, so much, right, you know, with what I've done uh, with. The studies and everything are, are, are pretty much uh, I'm going to be volunteering a lot of time and my expertise with um, just trying to help encourage other people and students and scientists. Uh, but, um, well, that's a really great question. I still love all the things that I did and uh, continue to do, but, you know, we're in a different world. And uh, to be honest, a couple of hip replacements have sort of taken the toll on my right side of my body. So carrying those 45 and 50 pound packs are pretty, those, those days are pretty much over with right now. Uh, do you have a website or places that people can follow you online? We do uh, fo- Facebook and uh, the book and the silent spoke has a website. 
Um, our healing seekers, we dissolved. That was the educational. Uh, we dissolved that last year, but all of our educational videos are still available in uh, several educational venues as well as YouTube, and they will be into perpetuity. I'll have links to all those sites for those who uh, I hope will uh, follow you and uh, learn and hopefully inspire others to pick up the challenge. Thank you, Mike. It's been a joy. So thank you so very much. And I enjoy your program so much. I was listening to uh, 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 Wayne White, I think, earlier today. and uh, Oh, he's quite a character. Yeah, yeah, I really like him. Uh, but I like all of your guests. And it's like one of those things that you really do wish you were, you had a, a huge table and you could just sit there and listen all day long. So thank you for doing what you're doing because you're bringing different worlds into my life. All right. Thank you, Amy. We'll see you on down the road. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.